Welcome to the Learning Shared Podcast. Hello, my name is Alan Wood and I'm your host. Thanks very much for listening. So Learning Shared is a space for anyone with an interest in supporting the needs of vulnerable learners in our society, including those with special educational needs and disabilities. We'll be hearing from and talking with a wide range of colleagues and stakeholders, including teachers, specialist practitioners, school leaders, researchers, as well as parents and carers. They'll be sharing creative, inspiring ideas, effective practice, and things they've learned along their journey. With that in mind, please get in touch if you'd like to suggest a topic for a future episode, or if you'd like to be involved in any way. You can visit us at www.learningshared.org or tweet us at underscore learning shared. The Learning Shared podcast is brought to you by Evidence for Learning and the EFL Send community. This is a growing community of teachers, practitioners, school leaders, researchers and academics that support children, young people and adults with special educational needs and disabilities, or indeed any form of additional learning needs. You can find out more about the EFL Send community and Evidence for Learning at www.evidenceforlearning.net. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, this episode has been specially recorded for Mental Health Awareness Week in May of 2020. Kindness is the theme for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. But what do we mean by kindness? This question surely deserves an answer at this time of crisis. We've witnessed some incredible acts of kindness in our communities and across society as a whole. Surely now is the time to reevaluate what kindness can give to our own sense of well-being, as well as in acts of kindness towards others. It's an essential component of the compassion that's going to be so essential to our school communities in the process of reconnection and recovery. A new report exploring kindness published by the Mental Health Foundation is very timely and so we've we've posted this on the Recovery Curriculum website at www.recoverycurriculum.org and that's to support this podcast special that we've recorded. It's a lecture by Barry Carpenter who's Professor of Mental Health and Education at Oxford Brookes University and as with the first Learning Shared episode, this one is delivered as a lecture with accompanying slides. So if you are listening to the the audio only version, we've got a link to the video slideshow on the Recovery Curriculum website. This week is Mental Health Awareness Week 2020. This lecture has a focus on our children. It's another contribution from Evidence for Learning and from Oxford Brookes University around this whole theme of children's mental health during the current pandemic. The title of our lecture is actually a question. When will we talk about the mental health of our children? I want to reflect on the impact of this pandemic on our children's emotional well-being. Lots of the conversations that are happening out there 
are about mental health, it's good to hear that as a general topic of conversation about the impact that this pandemic is having on everyone. We're being encouraged to exercise because that's good for our mental health and our politicians, our royal family, other leaders are all referring to looking after your mental health as well. But little focus is given actually to our youngest people, to our children. And what sense are they making of all of this? What impact is it having on their mental health? Let's explore that together. I've tried to, by reading around the topic, and as I've tried to uh, articulate in previous lectures, and there's no solid evidence base around this. This is not a research area. This is a new phenomena that has hit the world, that has hit our country, that's hitting our lives. And what I'm trying to do is, is identify the threads that are repeated and postulated in the general discourse around the uh, coronavirus pandemic. And there's this statement in, in The Guardian from Campbell, which talks about more people experiencing serious psychological problems for the first time during lockdown. And how many of these were children? We know, and I'm going to interweave into this presentation what we know. We know and have known for a time that year on year, childhood depression is increasing. This particular research study from Prediction Demova to Austrian colleagues, mine who are psychologists and psychiatrists, I've quoted mercilessly for the last 12 years because they had pulled together from the statistics across the European Union when we were part of the, the EU that across the 28 member states, year on year, the childhood depression figures for each of the member states was increasing. And if that trajectory continued on its course by 2020, it would outstrip any other form of disorder in childhood. In fact, we achieved that goal before this year. But with this year and its events into that equation, my goodness, we are going to have some very depressed children. I'm not going to try and paint a black picture tonight. In fact, I want to move away from that. But you have to have some facts to work from to know what interventions we can do in school because this cannot be left to a CAM service. This is the responsibility of all of us. We all will have to have a significant focus on mental health when our children return to school. Well-being, particularly emotional well-being, needs to be as much of a core subject in the curriculum as literacy and numeracy. Let's just get that straight at this point. It does not need to be subjugated. It needs to be upfront and bold. Prince William, Catherine, his wife, do splendid work on being non-political, but keeping that headline of mental health there. They've all spoken openly about their own mental ill health. William has spoken about his, his grief following the loss of his mother. And he says here, you know, we all have mental health as we do physical health. And we need to seek help. And there will be an expectation post this pandemic that our children will need help too. But schools have a key role to play in that. 
schools will be a catalyst. Teachers will be a vehicle for illuminating the mental health needs in children. But teachers will also be first responders to some of those mental health needs. There's no point us saying it's a profession anymore, but we've never been trained. No, we haven't. But we need to learn on the hoof, for and with our children. After the parents, it is you as a teacher that knows that child best of all. It's you as a teacher that has the eyes to see the mood swings in a child when they have a low mood. It's you as a teacher that can sense their anxiety and their distress. And at times it is you that they will look to for the reassurance to rebuild their confidence, to rebuild their self-esteem, their self-image, their self-concept. There are many definitions on mental health. I just want to give us one in this lecture that we can all work to. And it's this one from the Mental Health Foundation about the positive sense of, of well-being and ability to function in society. But people in good mental health have the ability to recover from illness, change or misfortune. We are in a time of illness, change and misfortune. Absolutely, we are. We are living in a financial catastrophe, a public health emergency, a mass community trauma. Look at those words. Those are words of hope, the ability to recover. Many of you will have already listened to the podcast on the recovery curriculum and others are coming to further explore that whole notion of, of what is uh, a curriculum of recovery. This is just a special contribution to that whole debate because this week there is a focus on, on mental health in our country. Uh, and we felt it's important as a team at Evidence for Learning that we actually spoke on behalf of the children. Let's remind ourselves of the rights of our children. The Article 24 from the UN speaks of health. Yes, it's a basis for good quality of life, but mental health is of overriding importance. You can have the most gifted and talented student in your class, a charming child who works really hard, but in fact, if they push themselves too hard and their mental health breaks, what's it all been for? Some children will come back not knowing their own capacities in terms of their mental health. What was their inner strength and their resourcefulness before the pandemic? They may go to pull on that to get themselves through challenging times when they're back in school and find there's nothing there. Their inner strength is empty. So we need to have clear structures in our school to rebuild our children's mental health. But mental health is a medical term. We are teachers. I think a better term for us as teachers is emotional well-being within the context of well-being as a whole. But when we talk about mental health, we really mean mental ill health. So let's get some edu-speak in all of this. Let's speak about our curriculum response is actually emotional well-being. Some of you will have heard me say before, I'm strongly of the belief that the curriculum is the servant of the child, not its master. We have lived for the last two, three decades in political 
driven curricula, now is the time to arrest it back, to take charge of the curriculum in our schools. If we don't, we will disadvantage huge swathes of our, of our children. I want particularly to think about vulnerability. Um, in a recent ASCIL webinar, I was asked to define vulnerability. And for me, there's, there are three Ds to vulnerability. Disadvantage, deprivation, and disability. And here in the evidence that Anne Longfield, the Children's Commissioner, has generated, again, only in the early part of this year, on the cusp of the pandemic outbreak, she talked about this cocktail of secondary risks and talked about vulnerability. But vulnerability here, she, she beautifully illustrates, on the deprivation and disadvantage front with homelessness, poor accommodation. Um, look at that statistic. 90,000 children are in families who are sofa surfing. What must that be like? To wake up tomorrow morning in one place on one person's sofa and then walking the streets with your, with your parents until you find another friend who'll take you in and off you their sofa for that night. This, this prolonged period of, of temporary and transient accommodation, the impact on the child is immense. It will damage their well-being and their mental health. Just think as well, if the child has some special needs or a disability, a child at the heart of what is being said here will have that combination of disadvantage, deprivation and disability, the three Ds. So let's think more about the children. That impact of, of that transient nature of their lives, the impact actually of, of what's happening to all of our children could affect their attachment. The bond of attachment they have, particularly in the early years in primary and, uh, and in some special educational settings with their teacher, has been broken. Some children with very complex needs will not be able to comprehend why their teacher walked away from them why that head teacher closed their schools. I, I know from some colleagues that parents having to ride past the school from time to time in their car to show their child that the school is still there because their child is quite heartbroken at having lost that, not just rhythm of life, but that joy five days a week, they going to school and being with people who care and understand them, uh, meant to them. You know, when a child is, is insecure, the busyness of a classroom can be very challenging for that child. And now we've had this lockdown period, an extended period of absence, period of absence from school. Um, for some children, that's going to raise a real sense of fear uh, and insecurity. So let's remind ourselves that research tells us about the four S's of attachment. Our children need to be seen, to be safe, to be soothed, and to be secure. Some of those I've not always focused on when I've spoken about attachment. I've normally gone to this next slide where I've aimed for secure and told you the benefits of, of children in terms of learning because again, that's our job. We are teachers and children come to school to learn and it's our job to facilitate that learning. So we want to know that children will be better problem solvers, more uh, self-aware, that they'll be more cooperative, that they'll achieve more highly academically if they're securely attached. But now we need to also let children know they feel safe. They're going to feel 
that at any point on any day that head teacher could decide to close their school. They can feel like they are invisible. Were they really valued? Of course they were. But colleagues, tell them. Tell them you are sad too that their school closed. Tell them that you're sorry for what they've been through. It's no one's fault. You're sorry for yourself that you've had to go through this, missing your friends, missing close members of your family. But they are safe. And education in itself, the structure and the routine that you can offer them, that will be soothing. So can you see all four of those S's? Now for me, suddenly have a vibrant educational dynamic to them. Let's go for it. Because now we have a new phenomenon. The Royal College of Psychiatrists, who are most diligent and conscientious in putting out quality information, have this last weekend spoken of lockdown anxiety. That the very experience of being shut in their own homes with limited external activity will have raised the anxiety of some children. Some children will have got so used to being just in their home, they'll be very fearful about coming out of their home. We should take the opportunity now to do more exercise, because um, that's permissible, to actually heighten our children's awareness of the outside world and start to bring back their autonomy uh, as independent uh, young people, because some will have lost that. What do some children imagine the virus looks like? I know of some autistic children who have become obsessed by the virus and believe it's crawling outside of their house and will not go outside the house because it will crawl onto them. Now those myths need to be dispelled. And teachers in their factual, direct approach can do that so well. Mom and dad have had so much to bear. They've had to be the educators of their their children as well as the loving parent caring for their child in a time of crisis. That's a schizophrenic role. We've asked a lot of our parents. Let's get back to supporting them and doing what we, we do well. Let's listen to each other. It's been a fabulous partnership. Our profession should be so proud of how they've gone about supporting home learning, getting things out to homes, either via um, the internet or personally delivering it to the doorstep and leaving it for a child to, to work from. Or, uh, as I know my, my own son has done with his school, Matthew wrote the recovery curriculum with me, for those children that did not have internet access, posting out weekly packages uh, of schoolwork for the children to go through. Let's get back to that role we do so well. But know now that there will almost be a therapeutic dimension. Indeed, there will be a therapeutic dimension to what you do. And let me remind you, and some of you will have heard me speak about this, but I'm, I'm, I'm sharing this with you in the context of the phenomenon now of lockdown anxiety. Anxiety is a key block to learning. It can prevent the imprint on the brain. So the neuroscience around this is the cortisol levels in the brain. When the child gets anxious, the cortisol levels will rise. They will hit the surface of the brain. They will block the area where memory is stored, where the teaching that you're, you're giving out uh, imprints on the brain, it's not going to happen because the cortisol is blocking it. And the anxious child is not a learning child. So this trauma is going to be a dynamic because it always falls 
hardest on still developing children. And there's a lot of talk about, oh, they'll bounce back. They're naturally resilient. Don't worry about it. They're, they're children, for goodness sake. They'll be fine. Such willful, wishful thinking. I misspoke there and said willful. Well, it's both. It's willful and wishful. It's people trying to brush things under the carpet. No, we know the consequences of that from what we've done in previous generations. Let that not be a hallmark of our 21st century practice at this time of crisis. Let's be open. We're far more in touch as a nation, as a community, with our feelings now than we ever have been. Let's reach out to our children who are experiencing those feelings but do not have the vocabulary to articulate how they feel, do not have the, the cognitive skills to decode and encode what those emotions mean. It's affecting and impeding all aspects of their development. So let's deal with that so it doesn't hamper their healing. Healing is part of the process of recovery. Yes, I'm borrowing language from the world of, of medicine. Does it matter? Healing is what you do. A skillful teacher can calm the worries of the child that is troubled. Then the good news is that you as schools have that potential to heal that child, to prevent further escalation of need. You are a community. You pride yourselves in being community. Let that community work. Release the dynamics, the positive dynamics of your school community. There are fairly straightforward things that can happen about how we value each other, how we can strengthen each other by our interactions. And we can work them against what I've called a pandemic destruction. It will destroy a whole generation of children if we don't take action as teachers. And yes, we're going to have to do some paradigm shifting, do things that we've not traditionally thought were our role as teachers. We're going to have to be bold and brave. And maybe we start to say to our politicians, to our inspectorate, enough. We cannot be judged by those measures anymore because they are not, as Dylan Williams talks about the curriculum, as the lived experience, they are not the lived experience of our children. Our children have lived through one of the most, most traumatic episodes known in this 21st century. In fact, since the last world war, one of the most traumatic episodes. And their curriculum needs to be their servant to serve those needs. Let's just be straightforward about it. And our communities will be stronger. They will be more resilient. And you know, the joy of this is we can make meaning of this tragedy that we have lived through. There again is, is existing research and, and learned reports that can substantiate some of these issues. So this one from, from Dame Sue Bailey, about schools are a critical environment when she's speaking about uh, mental health in young people. Schools are a critical environment. They absolutely are. They were when she said that, oh my goodness, they absolutely are. Do you know you've got children thirsting to be back in your classrooms? Children who will be overjoyed to see you. In fact, their inclination will be to hug you. 
So please make sure you've got very clear social distancing in place. Royal College of Psychiatrists, again, a very helpful report um, that they reviewed what really matters to ch in children's mental health. And they said that schools needed to be at the heart of this. Before even this pandemic, that when we were building uh, mental health and emotional well-being in our schools, the psychiatrists realised that was not traditionally our domain, and yet more than their, them, more than their psychiatrist clinic, their psychiatrist couch, the medications they could prescribe, it was actually you that have the power to influence a child's emotional development. And they went on to say that we need interventions around emotional well-being equivalent to what we have in literacy and numeracy. Colleagues, we're knee-deep in literacy and numeracy. Emotional well-being, not a lot there, is there? So if that was said before this pandemic, more than ever, we need this. And we have some emergent infrastructures with the mental health leads, with the uh, mental health first aid courses, lots of courses and conferences around at the moment are uh, dealing with mental health. At Oxford Brookes University, we now have a master's degree in mental health. I'm supervising some students at doctoral level, looking at mental health issues. And at undergraduate level, we've started to thread through specific uh, foci around guest lectures to do with mental health. And indeed, within our portfolio of special needs modules, social, emotional, mental health is a key dynamic. So there are movements around that will help us build, but now, more than ever, the urgency, the necessity of all of this is, is self-evident. It's pandemic-driven. You will have read or have access to or listened to the podcast around the recovery curriculum. Within the recovery curriculum, we've articulated five losses. These were the five losses that were most coming through in the current debate and literature around this pandemic, the loss of routine, structure, friendship, opportunity, and freedom. I'm not going to go into each of those in depth. I cross-refer you to the podcast on the recovery curriculum that you will find on recoverycurriculum.org. We go on in our paper, Matthew and I, to say that there are negative forces impacting our children's mental health. Because from that loss emanates three significant dynamics, anxiety, trauma, and bereavement. In fact, just this last weekend, the Archbishop of Canterbury said, anxiety, bereavement, loss are all traumas. They're going to impact on the lives of each and every one of us to some degree. Adults will hopefully have some capacity to deal with them, but we know that already the word is out there that we face a crisis. The World Health Organization just in the last few days has said it anticipates a crisis like we've never seen before in the mental health of populations across the world because this pandemic is worldwide in a way that we've never seen before. And our children are vulnerable and their mental health is fragile. And for those of our children with special needs, we already know, factually, that for every five children on the school special needs register, those with special needs and a disability are three times more likely to have a mental health problem. Well, what's that going to look like post-pandemic? That in itself 
is enough of a rationale to make sure that social, emotional, mental health is going to be a high feature in the uh, curriculum of the child with special educational needs. And we know with the recommendations from the Rotterdam Review, the EHCP will become far more of a curriculum dynamic. You know too that there are recommendations from that review that engagement, which was uh, developed as a pedagogy and a formative assessment model through the work I led for the Department for Education on complex learning difficulties and disabilities, that that engagement model will now become statutory summative assessment. And so I would cross-refer you to the Engagement for Learning website where we've ensured that there are new uh, engagement profiles as per the, the, the model that the Rochford Review has recommended, building on the uh, original research by my team for the CLDD project at DFE. And why not use this as a screening tool when your children return? Not wanting to check up how much literacy and numeracy do they know or have they lost, but are they initiating? Are they persistent? Are they anticipating? Is there exploration and realization in their learning behavior? We need those elements to be there. And maybe the influence of the pandemic, the terror that some children may have lived through, will have suppressed those intuitive learning responses. Children each day have heard the daily death toll. They've heard of the crises in our hospital. What sense have some of them made of it? They've stored it, but not processed it. And, and a lot of the uh, space that our children will need will be about that processing time, that need for conversation. Do they need to know where to go when they want those conversations? Are you going to have a worry box in your classroom, in school? Are some of the uh, staff going to be designated for, for listening time? Um, these are thoughts that schools need to, to have. Think of our children and young people too with autism, of whatever ability, whether they're in a mainstream high school, whether they're in, in a special educational setting, whether it's in early childhood. We know that 70% of children, adults with autism will develop a mental health disorder. That's a very, very high rate. And we know too that with the onset of adolescence, mental health rapidly erodes in many of our young people with autism. This will have created hyperfear, hyperanxiety. Some of our young people with autism will have become hypervigilant. They're literally looking for the virus. We need to have factual information to deal with that. They'll have questions and we need some answers. You know that of, of late, uh, some of you will be very familiar with the work around girls and autism. And I particularly want to highlight because the evidence base there is very new, very recent, uh, very reliable, that uh, girls with autism particularly, uh, many of whom are undiagnosed, but the way we often learn that a girl has autism is through the anxiety, depression, and self-harm and eating disorders that she, she shows. But the final sentence here from, from this quote from, from uh, Tina and Grace in their chapter in the book is that this impacts on their, their ability to engage in the learning process and in turn achieve their full potential. And I think that's a generalizable statement. That will be so for so many of our children that the impact of the coronavirus pandemic 
will have impacted on their ability to learn. The learning processes themselves will have been tarnished and impeded. And will they achieve their full potential? Are we going to have a lost generation of children? Not if any of you have something to do with it. So those four losses I mentioned earlier, the, the consequences of, of those five losses uh, are, are these. Um, what are we going to do with them? We're going to help our children to heal. What might that look like? And I read a very useful article recently about holding a formal act of remembrance. You might say, well, nobody's died. Well, in some instances, children may have experienced death, but children will be mourning the loss, say, of their friendship groups, mourning the routines of school. There's been a significant act of loss. They know that the whole world has been shaken by this pandemic. What's, what are our memories? Um, I spoke to a multi-academy trust only earlier this week where they are going to create in, in their schools uh, a museum of love, hope and healing. What a beautiful thing to do. Maybe we do need to treasure some of these experiences for a while so that we visualize them for and with the children. Maybe we make displays, sad as they may be, it will help the children internalize our pace of teaching is not always their pace of learning. So if we have a static display, children can take information from it at the pace at which they learn, not at the speed at which the, children, the teacher wants to impart the information. Relationships, your relationship with those children is going to be front and center. They need to know that you're glad to see them, that you want them back. You want your school community to function again. You're literally going to go hand in hand, but you're not because of social distancing. But metaphorically, you are. Um, some children will need that social buffering. They will have lost the patterns of social interaction. They might be fearful constantly of rejection, either by you or by their peers, because they did not understand, maybe due to some special need or disability, why their school had to, to close. Some children will test the boundaries. You need to be reaffirming those boundaries, but also there's going to be new rules and routines, uh, safety measures. That's going to be a shock. Some children are longing to come back to school, but it's going to be to their classroom as it was, and on the playground with their friends. And it's not going to be like that. Some tables in their classrooms are going to have hazard tape on it, don't sit here. The corridors are going to have perhaps lines going down the centre to keep children either one side or the other, to the left or to the right. Um, there are going to be other markers for keeping two metres distance around the school. It's not going to be the school that they left. And that will be quite a shock for some children. And we need to be ready to talk through the new boundaries, to reaffirm those boundaries. That's like a security blanket for our children. You think the children moan, but actually they like the rules because then they're safe. Remember those earlier words, seen, safe, and secure. Reevaluate and reaffirm your core values and the values of your school community. Value and treasure every child. You have a definite contribution as teachers. You've heard me say, Teaching is a relationship-based profession. 
there is something in your humanity that called each and every one of you to be a teacher. Just check out where that is. Touch it. Know it. Use it. Use it to be that human first. Because that smiling human being, the one whose eyes sparkle when they see the children, who, who celebrates the joy of achievement because they believe every child can achieve. That's who the children want to see. They, they want to, they'll yearn for those positive relationships. Reach out as a deliberate strategy. Don't hold back. They so need you. Include learning activities that have imitation. And this is very much my own thinking. Why am I saying that? I'm, I'm just near the completion of a school-based uh, inquiry project where we discovered that children who display attachment issues, the absolute key to getting them engaged in authentic learning is imitation. Simple. Do those Simon Says type games or literally do movement activities where they have to model the gross motor gestures that you're making because that involves looking so the eyes will send a message up to the brain along neural pathways. The brain will decode and encode that message and then make the, the hand-arm shape that you have made. So that message comes down from the brain along neural pathways into the arms and hands. That's wonderful. Just check out that those learning pathways are active. And how you do that is simply by imitating, modeling, mirroring, the brain is covered in things called mirror neurons. In the Broca's region, the speech area, in, in the uh, movement areas of the brain, I could go on and on. I'm not going to. But just believe me, imitation. The PE specialists, get out there. Use imitation in any PE activity. Let's have more exercise activity. Let's start teaching some new games activities. Why am I saying that? Because if you go back to football or netball or cricket, previous experiences, I'm not saying don't use them at all, but maybe children will have recall problems there. Try and break the brain into new learning pathways. So introduce a sport and activity and exercise that the children have not done before. So you, you help the brain to refresh the learning pathways and include repetition. Some children, if they're fearful, will do it beautifully for you one day, and then when you ask them to do it the next day, will look at you as if you've never said that before. Please don't tell them off. Their brain is going to be in such a turbulent state. Just gently reinforce it. Do you remember when we did it this way yesterday? We did this, this, and this, and away we go. And let's do that with those words of kindness. Because our greatest resource is compassion and we're going to deliver that at a time of greatest need in our children every interaction as treesman says is an intervention we need a culture now in our schools communities and, and culture is going to be so important when we talked in the recovery curriculum about well how do you live a recovery curriculum what were the values names of your school before this pandemic just go back and revisit them Check out they hold true, and then let them be your guide. Don't look to documents from on high. 
you know what they were like before. Well, guess what they're going to be like now? They're going to be not precise. They're not really going to be able to empower you to touch that child at their point of learning need, to envelop them as an active learner, to capture their attainment and achievement, and to celebrate it. Celebrate with your children every day the interactions. Praise them. Get the whole school community thinking about really matters, what really matters. We talk in the five levers about a transparent curriculum. Uh, and what Matthew meant there was that ability for children to co-construct, to co-create the curriculum with you. Recently at Baxter College, Matthew held an online uh, session for the student parliament and asked them, what, did you, what do you want from school when you come back? What do you want from your teachers? And they were clear they wanted scientific explanations of what this coronavirus is, what does it mean? Our children deserve to be given sound, high-quality knowledge. Are you ready for that? Are we the same or have we changed? You need to check out your own resilience before you go into that classroom because this can be very demanding work. There's no hiding behind the textbooks, the worksheets, the planned activities because some emotional outbursts from some children We'll turn that on its head. Are you ready? So let's explore the child's inner strength with them. Inner strength is not tangible. You can't see it. So maybe you're going to need to, to provide that in very tangible ways. But all the time, please, fill them with a sense of hope. At the moment, they will have a sense of fear, of trauma, of loss. Let's replace those with a sense of hope that we can reconnect, that we can recover, that we can be resilient once more. These are the five levers I've been referring to already. Uh, again, the, the podcast on the recovery curriculum will articulate these, but let's look at that last one, space. Yes, they'll have your classroom, but they will need other spaces too. To be used safely, but they'll need time to rediscover self-image, concept, self-esteem, self-confidence, is this the time to, whether you planned it or not, do a school play? How do you do a school play to social distance? Well, many theatres are going to be grappling with that issue. Maybe you need to try and grapple with it. Maybe that having to speak aloud in front of an audience. Um, maybe that's the way to, to help our children in this process of healing. This is the response that we've received uh, on the recovery curriculum as evidence for learning um, from one of the active schools um, led by, by Katie Fielding um, at Kingsbury Primary School where she's deputy head um, and she's taken the, re the recovery curriculum and permeated it into their school curriculum policy and they're calling it for this time of recovery and transition um, a rainbow curriculum just as we've had the rainbow uh, as the mark of this pandemic uh, and we've used it in relation to our NHS and our, our frontline workers. But you can see here that, that the goals and aims are about building trust and relationships, about helping children to co-regulate or self-regulate emotions and behaviours. At times, maybe we're going to need to demonstrate an emotional response and help our children to, to manage their emotions. But ultimately, all of this is not to just be touchy-feely and wishy-washy. It's actually to get our children back to engage in learning. 
to bestow on our children once more their rightful place as a learner, a successful, efficient, effective learner who can attain, achieve, and we will celebrate those achievements with them. Every child achieves and it should be celebrated. We're going to need to plan phases of recovery. Something has to happen for all children. Even if you think that child is totally well adjusted, you're not sure what's going on underneath. So let's give some factual, high quality information. Let's talk about it. Let's not brush it under the carpet. So that's for everyone. Some of your children will come to you and will articulate their worries. And you may decide to do some group work that explore that in a more personalized way. For some children, and this will go on for some time in our schools, we're going to need some dedicated deep recovery where they can explore the trauma. And maybe, yes, then we're going to have to work with some of our colleges, colleagues from psychology. Um, but we need to have that framework planned in our schools. Let me say to you again that if you search the international literature with me, colleagues, it comes down to two things, what makes us happy and what makes us sad. And we need to know how to use what makes us happy when we are feeling sad. If you go to the recoverycurriculum.org, uh, you will find a rationale for happiness boxes that uh, our colleague Bev Cobill uh, and I have written. Um, Bev has put together a beautiful step-by-step -step guide on how to make a happiness box. The local primary school in the area that I live is collecting shoeboxes now, and every child will be given a shoebox when they return to school, and they will make their happiness box which will be available to them in class. So at times when they need some additional stimulus to give themselves confidence, to regulate an emotion, to just calm them, to give them back their inner peace, it will be available to them. You can make these for any age group. There's one for a younger child in this next slide. Here's one for an older student based on a, a, a pop star, Demi Lovato. Uh, and this is what that student chose to put in their box. So the reference is there for you to go to the recovery curriculum and download the two sheets on this. And I want to give a shout out for exercise. I'm asking you the question here, how do we keep our young people emotionally strong? And exercise is, is one way. We've been encouraged from the beginning of this pandemic to at least take some exercise every day. And this is more than PE. It could be just a simple walk around the school playground, Maybe each child in turn is allowed to do that so that social distancing is, is truly enforced. Um, we need to encourage our children to deal with some of their mental health issues by releasing uh, the, the buildup of, of, of cortisol or, or emotional fear, etc., through some form of exercise. So please think about that in the curriculum diet that we're going to be offering our children. Because if we do not nourish these children back to health, we're going to have some very educationally malnourished children. I would recommend, as I have before, and again, you can hear the, the previous podcasts on Recovery Curriculum, think about the free downloads from somewhere like Books Beyond Words, completely wordless. No, this is not about literacy, but we need clear pictures where a child can co-create and, and, and co-construct a story about their lived experience. And I believe this could work for any child of any age group. 
you may think that even some of your most advanced learners would poo-poo this. I'm not sure they would. Because we did not have a vocabulary. We did not have a narrative around this pandemic. We have lived it. And now we need to take all of our lived experiences and put it into a coherent, cohesive narrative. And something like this resource, which again I'd emphasize is free with other uh, titles here, is a great resource. And indeed, the resources from Tina Ray and Nurture UK. This bereavement box, 60 cards, wonderful activities. Um, please think of using them. You can now buy these at a discounted price. Uh, because the charity has been able to get some additional funding uh, and they've made the resource uh, available uh, much more cheaply. And anybody that's dealing with year six and year seven needs to get this transition box. We're going to be sending children, year six children, from our primary schools to our secondary schools with no visits. How are they meant to cope with that? This transition toolkit is built on sound nurture principles is built on sound emotional well-being rationale please just get it and use it it's the best chance you've got of preparing those year six students and secondary schools you need to have it too because some of that transition work you're going to have to deal with when those children come to you in a way that you would not traditionally have to do it because they've not had a fair crack of the whip they, they the tours of the schools school uh, and and its facilities how the premises are organized needs to be the responsibility of the secondary teacher because with all the will in the world, the primary teachers cannot do that with all of the current restrictions we're operating under. Remember that this will have been a tragic episode for some children and maybe they've begun to self-harm. Again, this wonderful resource from Dr. Tina Ray will help. And I mentioned girls and autism earlier if you've got uh, children with autism that need particular emotional support i would particularly recommend this toolkit whilst it's targeted at girls many of the activities uh, will go to either gender fortunately the mental health leads training has, has started and most schools have at least one if not many more people trained as, as mental health leads there is a, a great resource here those mental health leads my goodness you thought you'd got a challenging job well I don't even know what word to use about how much we need you all now. Good on you for stepping up, but we need you to now deliver for the sake of our children. Maybe there need to be new modus operandi that were not perceived before this pandemic, but we need them now. It's a priority. Again, I'm going to say, well-being needs to be at the heart of the curriculum. It is its core. There are some excellent resources as well from Butterfly Print. Um, these will help you audit uh, what you currently have that supports mental health and emotional well-being in your school. Um, these booklets at the moment, these well-being journals, are down to, to just a few pounds each. Postage and packing is free. They can be bought singly. If you're still in a home learning mode, uh, parents can now obtain these. Maybe you've send, been sending home some fabulous stuff, but maybe none of it has dealt with emotional well-being. Let's deal with it now please have a look at these resources. If some of the things I've said around trauma, anxiety, etc., you feel ill-equipped to carry out yourself, there is a free online module. Go to complexneeds.org.uk and module 3.4 deals with, in very short, bite-sized chunks, a whole range of mental health issues. Let's borrow from other countries that have known 
major disasters as they did in Christchurch in New Zealand, where um, when the children began to re return to school, every school had a register of significant events that the child had gone through in the earthquake period, whether it was made homeless, whether they lost a loved one or was seriously injured, so on. Let's have a pandemic register in every school. What do we need to know about the child? Somebody lost their job in the family. Was mom a frontline worker? Did someone in their street die or worse, did a grandparent die? We need to know these things. You need to have that information and deal with it sensibly, sensitively. Um, a very simple thing for a school to set up, but let's please collect that information. Don't leave it in, to come forward in a haphazard way. Dr. Tina, where you have spoken of and uh, uh, in terms of her resources, has said this about the recovery curriculum. The recovery curriculum identifies the need for compassion and trauma-informed leadership at this time, which oversees the development of curricula, which therapeutically meets the needs, individual needs of our children. We need these compassion-based approaches. We need a transparent, co-constructed curriculum. And if you want to hear Tina talking more about mental health and COVID-19, there's a YouTube clip there to follow up. Colleagues, this is a watershed moment in the life of our schools and of our education system. To capture this impetus, to capitalize on this dynamic that can lead to system realignment and recreation, we need transformational leadership. But we need humanity more. At the heart of all our actions, the hallmark of our leadership is compassion. Our goal, our focus has to be emotional resilience and to rebuild the emotional resilience in all of our children. For some, that will just be a few activities for a few weeks and they'll have got it together. But for others, it will be a much longer journey. It's going to be a vital component now. It's going to be part of the armor for life that we need to give our children because maybe we're going to have to learn to live with COVID-19 that it will become one of those diseases that we all have to be vaccinated against, as we already have a range of vaccines against other diseases. Think about how your school itself promotes resilience, just by the place it is. School is a place, education is a process, and educators, you, are people. You are human beings. Your children are human beings. You're larger than them, older than them, but we're all tired, bonded together by that common humanity. In the words of Gabriela Mistral, many things can wait, the child cannot. Now is the time his bones are being formed and his mind is being developed. To him, we cannot say tomorrow. His name is today. I wish you all well in your endeavours, in your journey, for and with our children. Thank you. Thank you, Barry, and thank you for listening. So that was a special episode of Learning Shared recorded for Mental Health Awareness Week in 2020. Watch out over the coming days for new episodes where we'll be returning to the recovery curriculum 
we've been recording some fascinating and insightful conversations with uh, a number of colleagues throughout the UK, exploring their reflections and plans for the recovery process at their school. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode and please do get in touch with feedback if you'd like to either suggest a topic for a future episode or if you'd like to be involved in any way. You can find more information about the recovery curriculum at www.recoverycurriculum.org. There's links to resources, reference materials, as well as uh, video slide decks. Barry Carpenter's webpage is www.barrycarpentereducation.com and the homepage for the podcast is www.learningshared.org. You can email us at learningshared at theteachcloud.net or tweet us at underscore learningshared. Finally, you're welcome to join the conversation via one of our online communities of practice. Um, we've got groups on Facebook and LinkedIn. Details are on the recovery curriculum and learning shared web pages. You can search for recovery curriculum as a group inside Facebook. So for now, thanks again for listening. Stay safe and be well.